So it's time for our uh, word today and our kids' sermon here. If kids want to come front, that'd be great. Um, Jeff, I just want to thank you again and the choir and Karen for the beautiful music this morning. There's, it's just wonderful. I, I really appreciate your effort and work here. So are we creating a boy's side and a girl's side? Is that how this is? Or <laughs> so I want to talk to you guys today and actually everybody today about the heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, you know, it isn't really just talking about that organ thumping and pumping blood in your chest. Um, actually, it's talking about the things that people are passionate about. Now, passionate is a pretty big word, um, but let me try and explain what passionate is in kind of a, a way, and I think this is how the heart kind of gets tied into this. Maybe you remember this feeling, maybe you had it when you were little, maybe you still get it, or maybe you can just envision it if you can for a second, that kind of feeling that you get when you're sitting on mom's lap and you're cozy and she's holding you and like all is right in the world and it sort of makes you tingle. Have you ever had that? You know what I'm talking about? Or, you know, I think that's kind of how the heart gets connected with this. Anyway, that's kind of where I'm going. And actually, our lesson today is going to involve a couple concepts from different languages, and this one also comes from a different language. When you have that feeling, the, the Danish call it hygge, which doesn't really translate to an English word, but it's where we get the word hug. So a hug is supposed to make you get that tingly feeling, sort of like that. At least that's what they think. So, Anyway, do you know what it means to really be passionate about something? Have you ever heard that? Glad I didn't read my notes. You're not allowed to cheat here. So, <laughs> okay. So, you know, being passionate about something is actually loving to do something. And people can get passionate about all kinds of things. Some people are passionate about riding bike or spending time in nature. Some people are passionate about art or music. Um, some people probably get passionate about playing on the computer. I don't know. But uh, that sounds familiar. So, um, anyway, some people actually pick their job based on their passion. Like, for example, some people just love to help society and other people, and maybe they choose to become a policeman or a nurse or something like that. Other people um, become passionate about an academic subject, and maybe they become a school teacher. Or maybe they're passionate about animals, so they become a veterinarian or run an animal shelter or something like that, right? And by and far, it's good to be passionate, right? Everybody wants to do what you love to do, right? That makes it seem not so worky work, right? You know, more like fun. And anyway, we tend to get good at doing the things we love to do too. So that's a good thing. And we, we say that this passion, by the way, where does it come from? Well, where does love come from? 
totally draw on like Valentine's Day and things. Hearts, Hearts right, right. So, you know, somehow this has got connected with the heart. And we say that the heart is where the things that we love, that's where they come from. And the heart is where things that we're passionate about comes from. But now, maybe you heard when um, uh, Mr. Jack was reading our scriptures this morning, the heart isn't always right, is it? It's not always a good thing. And uh, you see, the Bible says that we can fall in love with all sorts of bad ideas. Maybe you can think of other areas that you'd like to do, but probably you know you shouldn't, right? You know. Anyway, we're told in the Bible that the cure for this is to become passionate about God, just about his laws and his ways and his scripture, you know. And I want to talk to the big people today about what it would look like if we were passionate about Christ and actually what that's all about. That sound good? Okay. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me. Did that clear some stuff up, by the way? Is that, did you learn a new word, maybe? Or? <laughs> All right. Better go. So, thank you, guys. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. So, last week, we talked about what controls the decisions we made, and maybe you remember, we said the things that control our decision-making, we make those little g gods in our life. But instead, the Bible implores us to rely on God with a big G. So, if we rely on God with a big G, we actually end up with more freedom in the decisions that we make. Uh, we're free to make those decisions without the controlling influences of false gods that are usually fears, you know, or pride, which disguises themselves something like, you know, the fear of economic failure or social isolation, those kinds of things. Rather, the only controlling factor ought to be righteousness. But that righteousness stems from the heart. And we're develop, we are to develop a passion for the ways of the Lord. Yet in today's world, we hear a lot about this. We hear a lot about following our own heart. You need to follow, you need to find yourself. Follow your heart. Do what's right for you. But now, does that really work in the real world? If I go out there and follow my heart, is it not going to get me into trouble? I mean, in any way, what's right for me, that, that seems to say that there's something right for me that might not be right for other people. And, you know, by the way, the law doesn't work this way. I can't get on Route 12 and go 80 miles an hour, and when the cops stop me, tell him, well, look, it's right for me, okay? So I shouldn't get a ticket here. <laughs> Likely... That's not going to work very well. And in fact, we have a very hurting world right now uh, because of people following their own hearts. Uh, look around. How many kids today grow up in split families because parents followed their heart and it led them astray? 
It's a sad testimony. And you know, we can be very fortunate for our area out here. Actually, in preparing for this sermon, I looked up a statistic, and it goes like this. Ole Valley is probably the most blessed school district in our county. You know, 91% of the kids that attend school in Ole Valley live with both their mom and dad. That's really, really cool. But down the road, seven miles away in Reading, where I teach, the kids in our school, only 26% of them live with both their parents. Do you think that that's going to have an outcome down the road? And probably not a good one. You know, we need to be careful that following our heart, our hearts, doesn't hurt other people. In Jeremiah 17, we heard that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? And then we heard that God, God explores our hearts and our minds. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, um, but let's just say that I know me and I've done this. How many of us here have ever been prone to bad ideas? You know, right? Um, ideas that have led us down the wrong path, maybe. Um, we're all familiar with the sinful side of human nature, aren't we, really? I mean, for example... This week where I work, it was discovered that our union treasurer had absconded with almost $400,000 over the last several years. Now, looking at it from the outside, we always do the same thing. We think, well, did they really need the money, first of all? But eventually, it always comes down to, how in the world did somebody ever think that they'd get away with that? How did they believe that they could do that? But in reality, haven't we all been in that place at one time, done something that makes other people ask, why would you do that? Did you really think you were going to get away with that one? I mean, I know I've kind of been in those positions, not to this extent, of course, but, you know, and by the way, we all, we're all familiar with the politician story on this. The politician does something egregiously awful, and then shows up on television and says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Yeah, no, you didn't. No, not a mistake at all. A mistake is like an addition error, right? I mean, we make mistakes sometimes when we add numbers together or write a letter and spell something the wrong way. That's a mistake. But <clears throat> doing what the guy did, you know, for example, it takes a lot of forethought and planning to take your side chick to Paris for a week vacation or something like that, you know? That's not just a mistake. Um, and, you know, the rest of us go back to that same old question, you know, how in the world did that guy ever think he'd get away with that? On a side note, this, by the way, is why the Bible is big on confessing sins. You know, as I've read the Bible and I've tried to learn its message to its original audience. Confession of sin isn't about shame, and it's not about creating an embarrassment, an embarrassing situation to beat sin. In fact, the Bible pretty much seems to hold a dim view on whether or not even the law can beat sin. 
So if certainly if prison isn't going to be enough to stop sin, having to say that you did it isn't going to do it either. So why confess then? Here's why. <clears throat> when we confess, we cut off the ability of that sin to hold us in fear. Um, you know, did you ever notice, like, for example, going back to my coworker here, if you steal money, well, the sin doesn't stop there. You got to lie about where the money came from. And you got to falsify the record on how you got it. And you, you hide it. And, you know, so one sin piles on top of another and they grow like a tumor, like a cancer. And they control the next decision and the next decision. Confession is the cure for that. But what is it in the hearts of man, in the hearts of people, that blinds them in the first place? Why are we like this? Why are we so self-centered? Is it pride? Is it greed? Is it fear? What is it? When, you know, is it, is it really as bad as the Bible describes? Are our hearts so wicked that only God can fix them? And I think we need to begin to answer that question by straightening out the concepts as the Bible sort of lays them out. So I want to put two side-by-side -side verses together here. The first is from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema Yisrael, which is, you know, the command to Israel to listen to God. And in that command, um, part of the command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then in the New Testament, Jesus echoes these words saying that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I want <clears throat> to, excuse me, sorry. I want to tackle this question. Sorry. I want to tackle this question in a, in a kind of different way. I want to ask is this question talking about the constitution of man? That is what man is made up of. Are, are we a heart, a mind, a soul, a body? Are these, and, and these, by the way, are things that send like biblical scholars down years-long rabbit trails, you know, to try and search this stuff out. Is the Bible saying then that man is just one thing, kind of a body, heart, soul, spirit, all in one? Or are we many different things, a heart, a mind, a soul, a spirit, a body, or two things, you know, a body and a spirit, and the soul lives, you know. So these have been questions that have been raised over time that have actually caused division in churches. How do you interpret this sort of thing, right? Um, but I think in interpreting it, we can really get at what God is asking us to do here. Um, so I want to engage this for a moment and try and break it apart. And it helps, I think, to understand not just the problem with the heart of man, but the solution to that problem. And we should want that solution because God judges the hearts of man. Um, so first, we have a serious language and cultural problem between the languages of the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, versus English. So... 
<clears throat> what are we as people? In Genesis, we're called nefesh hayah, or just nefesh, other places in the Bible. It, and by the way, animals fit into this category also, um, sometimes also called nefesh behemah. But the word basically translates to soul in our Bible, or living beings other places, right? So this is soul, and then uh, in the New Testament, that word becomes psyche, which, you know, really indicates that the soul is the individual, it's the self. Um, it's actually the deepest sense of individuality. And so I want to look at the word for spirit here, too, so that we're kind of wrap that into this, too. Um, spirit in Hebrew is ruach, um, or pneuma in Greek. Both of these words come from the word to breathe, or for the word for wind. You can actually almost hear this in Hebrew. So, ruach, right? It's, you really got to breathe to say the word even. But in some places in the Old Testament, spirit and soul are used interchangeably. The New Testament seems to differentiate a bit, and it seems like the soul operates in the body while the body is alive, or in the spirit, while we're uh, dead or waiting for our new resurrected body. In any event, um, it doesn't get any easier when we start to look at heart and mind. So I want to go back to the language of the Bible a second here, say that heart is leib or lebab in, in, in Hebrew, rather. It's actually where we get the word Caleb as a name, um, but uh, means all heart, right? So, or... Cardia in Greek, and the mind in Hebrew is dehya, or nous in Greek. But in both biblical languages, these words are used interchangeably, and the only way we distinguish them in English is the context of the sentence that they're used in. So, for example, you know, we hear about the dehya ah elohim, you know, and it's translated maybe as the mind of God, some places, or the heart of God in other places. What makes the difference? Just the writing around it. But so, when the Bible talks about heart, it's not really talking about the organ, the heart. What it's talking about is the conscience. Deepest held beliefs, passions, desires, the intentions, in some places the courage or character of the person. In short, the heart is belief and passion. And what wells up in the heart is what leads to action in the real world. World, Sometimes this is referred to as fruit in the real world, right? That was part of our reading this morning. So the heart doesn't really have much to do with the organ beating in our chest. With the heart, one believes and one is justified. Belief or faith without action, works, is dead. It's no faith at all, according to James. So the heart is the moral constitution of the person that leads that person to action. To say that God judges the hearts of men is to say that he judges us then by our moral character. Scripture warns us that above all else, we should guard our hearts, for everything you do flows from your heart. 
It is the spring of life. It's from Proverbs 4.23 and John 7.38. When Jesus refers to himself as living water, a living spring, he's claiming the power to flow through your heart, to transform it, and therefore transform what comes out in your life. To never thirst again is to have a satisfied heart. Like the heart, the word for mind also encompasses a great many concepts in English. A person's inner thought life, their ability to think about things, and emotions all fall into the the domain of the mind. The mind is involved in planning and judging, in introspection. Do we still recognize the difference here in our modern language between head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? We've heard these concepts. So the mind then is kind of the sum total of our emotional, mental, and even spiritual faculties. It has the capacity to think and reason and understand and will. It's the producer of thoughts and decisions. Both the heart and mind are designed to work in tandem together with one another. Additionally, we learn from scripture is scripture that the heart is where the core relationship with God occurs. It's the tabernacle of the soul, the place of deepest connection to our creator, and where we experience the glory of God. The mind is the inseparable agent of the heart. It participates at the deepest level in this relationship with God, And as Paul says, it is the repository of the truth of God and the lies of man. When we read scripture, scripture enters our heart through our mental capacity. It enters our heart through our mind. So where then is man's kind of mission control center? Is it the heart, the mind, the soul? You know, and it is the heart that's judged. So it's the deepest core beliefs that are judged uh, by God. But the mind is an instrument that serves the heart. And anyway, if the, the heart is judged, what do you suppose happens to the rest of the being? Right? So maybe a better way to look at these passages would be, and, and in particular what I'm talking about is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It might look something like this. Love the Lord with your heart, with all your beliefs and desires, love the Lord. With your mind, in every way that you think, love the Lord. With your soul, in in all that you are as an individual, love the Lord. With your strength, love the Lord in all of the ways that you are physically able. In other words, love the Lord with all that you are. And I think that this is the way the Hebrew audience was intended, or later Greek audience when when the Gospels were written, were intended to hear these passages. Um, You know, there are differences between these languages, and that's, that's it. This list is not meant to separate the human into various different components like heart, soul, mind, whatever. Rather, it's to say, love the Lord with all that you are.
And in closing, Jesus in the Old Testament prophets see the heart of man as evil and hardened by sin. The Bible tells us that only God can soften the hardened heart, making us a new creation. As Christians, then, we are to introduce Christ to our hearts, through our minds, to understand what the Scripture says, to know with all our being that Christ has saved us and respond to that in love, to discipline our minds, to bring what Scripture says to bear upon our hearts and understand how thoughts form and bend those thoughts into obedience with Scripture. Can you know Can you know Scripture well enough that it undoes? Or can you know it deep enough is a better question, maybe, so that it undoes the desires of pleasure of sin? Can you know it well enough to bear the offenses the world will surely give or know it well enough to get through the troubles, even the troubles that lead to our own own ends? We are to know this to form a Christian view to the, so that we have the ability to know, obey, and live out the faith of Jesus, in Jesus. And so, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness a reward. Oh, I'm sorry. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Amen.